Hello and welcome back to Tani Talks Life, the TTL, brought to you by the Tani Talks Podcast. This is the share where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons. Tonight's topic is the transportation of life. All of my podcasts of the TTP, Tani Talks Parsha, TTPA, Tani Talks Perkeavos, TTD, Tani Talks Daf, TTOT, Tani Talks OT, and this show of the Tani Talks Live TTL are on different podcast forums. And most recently, it is also, besides for iTunes Podcasts and Google Podcasts, it's also most recently on Yidpod. Yidpod is fantastic. It's the Jewish Podcasts app service. Download it on the App Store today. And shout out to Jake W. and Ellie N. for their wonderful, wonderful work, as well as Chaim C. for their amazing hard work. The shows are now on the different forums and we hope that you're able to access them on these different aspects of the forums i apologize for the background noise of the fan upstairs in the background she's a big groupie anyone who wants to reach me can feel free to reach me at rebt at sheer enjoyment.com shout out to jake w and ellie n and chaim see as we said and it's for the sheer is for the refua and yeshua of anyone who needs it and anyone who wants it. Did you ever stop to marvel how awesome it is to be able to get around the town, to get around the city, and to get around the world? Did you ever think about how we have such amazing ways to get around the world, to travel around the world, and we don't even stop to think about it? How amazing is it to be able to get around the world? So too in life, we go from place to place. We go from destination to destination without even thinking about our travels along the way. Throughout my travels working as an OT, an occupational therapist for the city, I've taken many different types of transportation, including bus, subway, train, and walking. I even have to, I even have gone through different ways of getting about to work. I even once used a scooter. It's fascinating how we can get around from place to place in life. But do we ever really stop and think where this all came from? How did mankind used to get around? Think about the wheel. It is said to have originated in the Mesopotamian area. It is in the Mesopotamian era. Excuse me. We of course know sources in the Tanakh and Talmud that talk about it so we know it has been around for a very long time especially in use for carriages caravans wagons chariots and the like as well as for working the fields National Geographic depicts how in ancient times people crafted simple boats out of logs walked rode animals and later devised wheeled vehicles to move from place to place they used existing waterways or simple roads for transportation. Ancient people also constructed different things when they were in the ancients. They used to construct artificial waterways called canals to move goods from place to place. They used existing waterways or simple roads for transportation. Over time, people built more complex means of transportation. They learned how to harness various sources of power, such as wind, steam, and combustion to move barges, ships, and more. 
Think about the boat. Wikipedia explains that boats played an important role in the commerce between the Indus Valley Civilization and Mesopotamia. Evidence of varying models of boats has also been discovered at various Indus Valley ar archaeological sites. Uru craft originated in Baypur, a village in South Calicut, Kerala, in southwestern India. This type of mammoth wooden ship was constructed solely of teak with a transport capacity of 400 tons. The ancient Arabs and Greeks used such boats as trading vessels. Of course, we know throughout Tanakh, throughout the Talmud, boats made a major appearance throughout all of our Judaic sources and non-Jewish sources as well. Boats have been around a very long time, and we see it mentioned all throughout the Gemara, all throughout Tanakh, especially for means for traveling great distances. They talk about a person, if he went away, he traveled by boat, and we don't know where he is, and we don't know if he's alive or if he's or if he's not, and what should the what should the wife do? Is she an almana or not, or is she someone that's uh, um, someone waiting for what should happen in her life? Is she able to get married or not, especially when they take the boat around the world? But also think about, besides for the boat, the wheel for carriages, caravans, and the like, and later the bicycle. We have references to carriages and chariots and caravans throughout the Tanakh, especially how Yosef was brought down to Egypt very recently in the previous Parsha, and how Lahav del Paro could chase and catch up to the Jews, many Parshas coming up by the Yamsuf, and it could very well be, and probably was, that these vehicles had wheels attached and used. Wikipedia maintains that animal-drawn wheeled vehicles were probably developed in the ancient Near East in the times of Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt and the like, most probably already around at the time of the Avos, Lahavdil, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and the Shvatim. In terms of more recent bicycle invention, Wikipedia explains that the first mechanically propelled Two-wheeled vehicle may have been built by Kirkpatrick Macmillan, a Scottish blacksmith in 1839. Although the claim is often disputed, he is also associated with the first recorded instance of a cycling traffic offense when a Glasgow newspaper in 1842 reported an accident in which an anonymous gentleman from Dumfrieshire bestrode a velocipede of ingenious design, knocked over a little person in a little girl in Glasgow and was fined five shillings. In the early 1860s, Frenchmen Pierre Michel and Pierre Lalament took bicycle design in a new direction by adding a mechanical crank drive with pedals on an enlarged front wheel, the Velocipede. This is the first in mass production. I happen to think, actually, that the bicycle is my favorite, favorite mode of transport, mode of transportation. I believe there is a city in Europe, I think it might be Amsterdam, and even Venice also, where they mostly get around the city using a bicycle for the streets areas. And, of course, Venice has the water wheels, the waterways for every other aspect. But there is a town that only has bicycles. It's fascinating to get around the whole town, not having the cars and the noise and the pollution involved. People literally get around by the bicycle. So several inventions followed using that that model that was mentioned using rear-wheel drive, the best known being the rod-driven velocipede by Scotsman Thomas McCall in 1869. In that same year, bicycle wheels with wire spokes were, paint, were patented by Eugene Meyer of Paris. And then different innovations came in the comfort and, and allowed the bicycle to be more rideable and more usable in the 1890s golden age of bicycles in 1888. 
The Scotsman John Dunlop introduced the first practical pneumatic tire, which soon became universal. And then they went on to make it even more and more into the 1880s and the 1890s, inventing the brakes and inventing the pull brakes and the handbrakes to be able to be used by casual riders. The main ways that people used to transport before the automobile was invented, and we'll talk about that in a minute, were the bikes and the horse buggies. That was the two main ways of tr private transportation, especially in the late 19th century. And that these were used with much advertising production and use. There were one more than 1 billion bicycles manufactured since the early 21st century. They're the most common vehicle of any kind in the world, the most numerous model of any kind of vehicle, whether human or motor vehicle powered. That's my favorite form. I used to be an avid rider before having kids, before being in graduate undergraduate studies. But what about the car? Wikipedia explains it as well. When we think about how we transport ourselves in life, it's, it's Kadai. It's good to think about where this all comes from. We shouldn't take it for granted. We shouldn't think it always existed. It did not always exist. For hundreds of years, for thousands of years, people had to get around with very simple ways, with whether just the wheel or the horse-drawn carriage or using a horse or walking or running. Many different things came only very recently in history. The car itself, obviously a, a wheeled motor vehicle used for transportation, that they're used and they can have one to eight people. They have four wheels, of course, they transport people and they could also transport goods, but they only come, they only started being used in the 20th century, into the 21st century. 1886 is regarded as the birth year of the car when Carl Benz patented his Benz patent motor wagon and they became much more widely available in the early 20th century. One of the first cars accessible to the masses, I remember this from my global studies in high school, was the 1908 Ford Model T, an American car manufactured by the Ford Motor Company. And then they were rapidly adopted in the U.S. where they replaced animal-drawn carriages and carts. Especially around Europe and other parts of the world, demand for the car increased much later after World War II, and then there had to be better roads and paved aspects to be able to allow the car. Otherwise, it would just break up the tire and break down the car. How about the trains? For those of us who take trains, Wikipedia explains that they have their roots in wagonways, which use railway tracks and were powered by horses or pulled by cables. The steam locomotive was invented in the early 1800s, and then the trains spread rapidly across the world, allowing for cargo or passengers to move faster and cheaper than ever before, and they were built the transit and trams were built in the late 1800s to transport large numbers of people around the cities and around the world. In the mid-20th century, these on electric trains replaced the steam ones. And then the high-speed rail, which I find also fascinating, was built in the 1960s. And then commuter rail came about and has been a great alternative to congested highways and a means to promote development. And the light rail itself, which I think is the coolest, came about in the 21st century. While there are still conventional trains that have flat tracks with two rails, a number of specialized trains exist, which is like the monorail, which is a single rail. The most famous one that I could think of is the one by JFK, the, the high track one that's above the Grand Central Parkway, I believe, unless it's a different highway they can't think of. But the monorails, they operate on a single rail, while the, the rack railways are designed to traverse steep slopes. So when I think of a railroad and I think of getting around to work, I'm very... I have a lot of gratitude in Hakar Satov to the fact that we have the LIRR right here in our neighborhood and across Long Island. It allows people to get from Long Island to Queens and Brooklyn and the city 
to get around from the boroughs to Long Island. If not for that, it would be very difficult for many people, including myself, in the past to get to work. So where did this come from? The LIRR, known as the Long Island Railroad, is a commuter rail system in the southern eastern part of the U.S. state of New York, stretching from Manhattan to the eastern tip of Suffolk County, going all the way to Montauk, otherwise known as the end of Long Island, all the way out. With an average weekday ridership of the most busiest train in America, 354,800 passengers, as of 2016, it is the busiest commuter railroad in North America. Also one of the world's few commuter systems that runs 24-7 around the clock around the year. Publicly owned by the MTA, Metro Transporta- Metropolitan Transportation Authority, excuse me, and it refers to it as MTA Long Island Railroad. If you haven't used it, very fascinating experience, very well-coordinated experience, except for those few random times, like during the summer when I had a very long wait. But usually it's very on time and very... On the money. There are 124 stations, 700 miles of track on its two lines to the two forks of the island and eight major branches, one of them being the Hempstead branch and the West Hempstead branch. And then there's the, the I can't think of the other branches, of course, offhand, but there's the Montauk branch and the Huntington branch, and they're all over. And there's also the one that goes towards the city, that goes towards the, the Atlantic Terminal Bound, the one that goes towards all the different ones. Of course, it all escapes the mind on queue, but it has many branches and many places to be able to bring people. Originally, in the 1870s, it wanted to be in a different direction, but then it refocused its attention to serving Long Island, understanding that there was a need for it. People were moving out there to the suburbs to have whatever affordable housing they could have. So the president then and his successor acquired all the railroads, consolidated them into the LIRR. That was Poppenhusen and Corbin, and then the state of New York realized how wonderful the railroad was, how important it was. It subsidized the railroad in the 50s and 60s, and then it bought out the LIRR from the PRR for a lot of money, even back then, $65 million. It was given to the MCTA, Metropolitan Commuter Transit Authority, then it transferred to the MTA, and then it became part of the MTA. Just interesting to think about the history. We think all the time about our history, Jewish history, the history of the of the Talmud, the history of the Bible, Lahavdal, Lahavdal, Lahavdal. But do we ever think about the history of things that help us and support us every single day, from the car to the train to the subway we'll talk about in a second, to the boats which we talked about, and then we'll also look at the plane. When we think about how we get around in life, how we get transported in life, not just metaphysically and metaphorically, but literally how we get around, it behooves us to think about and have gratitude to Hashem where these things come from, how it came about, how did it start, where did it go from, and where did it go to. Was it always around? No, it wasn't always around. It was very difficult in the past to get around. I remember learning at Global how people used to settle the earth way back then in the Paleolithic times and the Neolithic times and the Bronze Age and the Middle Age and the Iron Age and, the, and this age and that age, and they had to walk across the entire world from one side of the earth to the other because there wasn't even the wheel way, way, way back in the day. They had just the feet of man. And then throughout the centuries, throughout the thousands of years, what happened to be able to have all these fascinating inventions to help us get to where we need to go to work and get us around the country, to get us around the world? To get from America to Israel is 10 hours and 12 hours to get back, which I always think is interesting because Hashem doesn't want you to leave, so he makes the trip longer to get home than to get there. But 10 hours, it used to take months, weeks, or months to get there. And the only way to get there, besides for walking from Babel to Israel, people used to walk, people used to take boats or whatever they could get, or a horse-drawn carriage. It was a very arduous journey, very difficult journey. 
Think about the people in Ezra Nehemiah's time that came from from abroad, from away from Israel, coming to Israel was not easy. They had to walk, they had a horse, maybe maybe they had a carriage with the wheels, but not nearly as comfortable as the things we have nowadays. So it behooves us to think about all the things we use for transportation and how we get around, how we could get from home to work, from work to home, from home to shul, or to get around the country, to get around the city. Very fascinating how you can get there in a very distinct and very quick amount of time as comparison to the original ways that people used to get around. I myself, of course, have been a very frequent user of the LIRR itself, the Long Island Railroad, having used it pretty much every day, every year, since the beginning of working for the city to get to different locations. And fascinatingly, thank God, it was able to be used that I could give my wife the car to get around, and I use public transit. A lot of times, it would be the train to the subway. And in more recent years, I was able to find locations right off the train, whether it be a 5-minute walk or a 10-minute walk or a 15-minute walk. But to have the train from your house, a 10-, 12-minute walk from our house to the train station right over here, and then a couple of minutes from the train station to work is a fascinating, wonderful thing. And the trains are nicely kept and well kept. They have heat in the winter and they have air conditioning in the summer, which is also not to be taken for granted. The only time we think about it is when it actually breaks down and when it doesn't work. Why isn't it working? Why is it so cold? Why is it so hot? Oh, man, can't they get it working? But I've used the train all over to get to different boroughs, and I'm a big fan of the train. It's very fascinating. The light rail also is an, a more recent invention more inner city kind of an idea, a form of a passenger urban rail transit characterized by a combination of tram and metro features. Its rolling stock is more similar to a traditional tram, but it operates at a higher capacity and speed, usually has a right-of-way, an exclusive right-of-way. It has its own designated track to get through the city. Many cities have it resemble and be different and, and be above ground usually, but it resembles the underground or subway type of a system. There's one, for example, called the C-Tran and the Calgary Transit. There's no official definition, but it operates primarily along exclusive right-of-ways and uses either tram cars or multiple units to form a train with a lower capacity and lower speed than the, the long, heavy rail passenger train or metro system. Some have characteristics that are like rapid transit or even commuter rail. Some have heavier rapid transit-like systems called, called the light metro. Other, one, other ones are tram-like for sure, and some are operating partially on the streets. We'll actually think about it in a minute, but the one that I think about most is the one in Israel, and we'll talk about it in a minute, called the Rakeva Kala. In terms of the subway, though, I always used to think it's very fascinating. Sometimes in high school, when I was working in different high schools for kids with special needs, we showed them the subway map, and one of the summers I remember talking about the theme was transit, was transportation, and one of the mainstays of the theme was actually looking at the subway map, subway map and looking at the history. So we taught the kids, and it's interesting to see from Wikipedia that the, the, the subway can be traced back to the one in London in 1863, which began the idea of rapid transit. When people were using steam engines, it wasn't such good ventilation. It wasn't so pleasant. It was very loud, very rickety. I can imagine that you're on the tracks and you're being hit. Your, your body's feeling the vibrations of the train tracks. It's not a pleasant experience. So they were figuring what to do otherwise. So pneumatic railways didn't work either, so people thought that electric was a better way to go. The traction was more efficient, faster, and cleaner, probably healthier also. It was a natural way to think about how to use electricity. Again, electricity, also a modern invention, 
Maybe we'll talk about that another time, but that's not something that was in the past. In the past, there were candles, candles and lanterns and kerosene oil and things like that. Electricity is only in the past recent centuries. We have to look up where that came in officially, when the light bulb was officially, what year it was invented. I know we learned about it on Global. But that also was something in recent past. So when the electricity was available, a much smarter idea was to use electricity. So in 1890, the City and South London Railway was the first electric traction rapid transit railway, which was also fully underground. It used to be called City and South London Subway, but then it changed its name, merged it into the London Underground, otherwise known as the Tube. In 1893, the Liverpool Overhead Railway was designed to use electric traction from the outset. The terminology spread to other cities in Europe and the United States and Argentina and Canada, with some railways being converted from steam and others being designed to be electric from the outpest. Budapest, Chicago, Glasgow, New York City all converted our purpose designed and built electric rail services. We actually took the tube itself, my wife and I, when we were on our honeymoon in London on the trip in 2013, and it was very interesting of an experience. Please mind the gap. Please keep all belongings inside the tube and on your person. Please Mind the gap. Terrible British impersonation, but they would say, mind the gap. That you have to watch where you're stepping, keep all your belongings to yourself. It was a very interesting thing, and different branches would go to different places. It's much easier for me to, to try to finagle the, the subway system in New York. To me, it makes sense. You take the one here, you take the queue here. That one had the north-handed one, and the, the one that went to to Manchester, and the one that went down to downtown London. Different trains for different places but the idea being that they call it the tube the underground and actually the tube and the subway are not the, the same in london one means to walk underground under an underpass or a subpass and one actually means to go in what we call the subway here which is the underground the london underground or the tube but the new york city subway is is the one that was created in new york is a rapid transit system owned by the city of new york and leased to the new york city transit authority and it's run by the MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, and it was opened in 1904 in October 27th. It's one of the world's oldest public transit systems, one of the most used, and one with the most stations. I think I myself have used many of the stations when getting from Queens to Brooklyn or Brooklyn to Queens to getting around. One was above ground fully, one was underground. I always one in the summer that was basically above ground, which I liked a lot. And it has so many systems. It is the most used, the most stations. It's the largest rapid transit system in the world by number of stations, with 472 stations in operation. 424, if the stations are connected by transfers, are counted as single stations. Of course, they're in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx, and Staten Island has a little train. Also, it's one of the longest. The system contains 248 miles of road translating it to 665 miles of track and 850 miles of trackage. Isn't that crazy how long and how big it is? Do we ever think and stop and say, wow, the Chachma involved that Hashem put to put all these different trains, all these different lines, all these different tracks throughout the city underground. How did they even build it? How did they get down there? I don't know. But they built it and it's throughout the boroughs. And it's fascinating to think how we could get from the top of New York down to the bottom of New York in a matter of minutes or an hour or so. And it's fascinating to think how it was built only in recent history. When you think about the bus, the first mass-produced bus was designed by Frank Searle, and that was operated by the London General Omnibus Company. It entered in 1910, and almost 3,000 had been built by the end of the decade, and hundreds saw military service on the Western Front during World War, the First World War as well. 
And of course, when it comes to airplanes, the Wright brothers very famously invented and flew the first airplane in Jeopardy question 1903. The first sustained and controlled heavier-than-air powered flight. They built on the works of George Cayley from 1799 when he set forth the idea of the modern airplane. And then between 1867 and 1896, the German pioneer of human aviation, Otto Lilienthal, studied heavier-than-air flight following the limited use in World War One, And they continued to develop it, and they had a presence in the major battles of World War Two. But the first jet aircraft was the Heinke Hay in 178 in 1939. The first jet airliner, the de Havilland Comet, was introduced in 1952. And then the Boeing 707 was the widely successful commercial jet, the first one. That was for 50 years, from 58 to 2013. So I wanted to give a little history, a little appreciation of the different modes of transportation that are out there and where they come from. How long have they been here? Not so long. There are many forms of transportation. The question is, do we take them for granted? Do we appreciate them? Do we thank Hashem for inventing them and giving them to us? Do we really understand and appreciate where they come from? So too in our own lives, do we think about how we travel and transport ourselves from place to place, sometimes on autopilot? You know how there's the cruise control button on the car? For some reason, I never know how to use it. You're supposed to just press it. I guess it's supposed to go when you're on the speed you want on the highway. I don't like to use it anyway because it's uh, too much auto control, but there's an autopilot button also on a plane. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we ourselves put ourselves on autopilot. We don't think about where we're going. We don't think about where we're transporting ourselves. We don't think about where we are in our transportation of our life, going from place to place without thinking about what we're doing. Think about your life journey. How are you going from destination to destination? Is it just on autopilot? Is it just on auto control? What are you doing as you transport yourself from place to place? As we're talking about the rail system, I like to think about the Rakeva Kala itself, the inner city rail system in place in Yerushalayim that takes travelers across the city. In fact, my wife and I got to use it when we got married in 2013 on that trip. The Rakeva Kala was newly finished and inaugurated. We actually got to take the train very late at night, not realizing it was basically the last train of the night. Having been new to the inner city train system, we didn't understand exactly which stop to get off at. So when we heard that it was the last train of the night, and the last stop was coming, we got off, not realizing that the stop we got off was not Shariafal, as we had hoped, and that everyone takes and everyone gets off at the obviously Jewish gate where everyone's supposed to go that we would feel the most comfortable. But instead, we got off instead of Shariafal, we got off at Shar Shechem. That was not a very good uh, not a very good stop to get off at uh, 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, whatever it was at the time. It was very late at night. And we were most obviously Jewish. So when we realized our mistake, and we looked at one another, my wife asked me what to do, and all I could think of was, Rod! We ran it to a better locale as fast as we could with our feet, as much as we can. I was hyperventilating. My wife was hyperventilating. Not a good experience. Don't do that. Highly not recommended. Make sure you know your destination in life. Make sure you know your destination on the train, on the inner city railway. It would make sense to look at the traveling route beforehand. Know where you're going. Don't get off at Shar Shechem, the metaphorical Shar Shechem of your life, and the literal Shar Shechem. Don't do it. Make sure you know where you're going. Whenever you want to plan your route in life, when you want to plan where you're going, when you're going to transport yourself, what transportation you're going to take, understand where you're going to go. Anytime I get a school, anytime I look into a school, I always Google map it from our house to the school, what public transportation is available, what train is available, how would I get there, how long would it take to drive. Every single time that the transfer list comes out, I research it like a detective, diligently. Every single school in the summer, when I was when I 
look to see if there was a new transport list because I always want to find a closer school, a closer school to the house, as close as we can as possible. I look at every single one, trying to plan the route, trying to see how to get there. I Google map it based on 6.45 versus 7 p.m. 7 p.m., excuse me. Never we should be traveling so late. 6.45 a.m. versus 6.50 a.m. versus 7 a.m. It makes a difference. Back in the day when there was an extra 7.8 train from our town, 7.18 train, they don't have it anymore. What's the difference between a 6.55 a.m. train versus a 7.18 train versus a 7.34 train? Which one is going to work? When you're going through things, when you're plotting how to get somewhere, if you're given a destination, you're given a work location, how are you going to get there? Don't just wing it. It never works. Maybe even a dry trial one would be good. Sometimes in the past, pre-kids at least, we used to drive to the location in advance so we saw what it would look like. We would know where to get off it. We would know what to do. I have also tried the the train itself before the first day of school in the past, which is very good. And if I can't do that nowadays, not so realistic or practical, I Google, I Google map it heavily. And in the olden days when we had MapQuest, MapQuest did a lot, even weighs it if you need to drive that day or not. Make sure to have the destination in mind. Make sure to know where you're going in life. The transportation of life behooves us to know where we are going, how we're going to get there, what mode are we going to take to get there. Also think about the new shuttle, which I just saw called the Old City Train. It's a new transportation service that takes visitors from the Yaffa Gate to the Western Wall, to the Coastal Amaravi, and greatly increases accessibility to the wall for the disabled. I always thought that it would be a nice thing to get people from that gate to the wall itself. It might be a little bit of a distance for people to walk to, people who are not so ambulatory, people that have difficulty, that have special needs, that have functional mobility issues. How do they get there? This is the solution, the Old City Train. How wonderful is that? And the Daily Lift points out on Aish that regardless of your physical condition, regardless of your, your state in life, your, your literal state in life, your present state is determined by your thoughts. Your emotional reality depends upon the focus of your mind. Today, think of five places, either places you've already visited or would like to visit that you can go to for a mental vacation. I like this idea a lot because a real vacation is quite costly. And if you have kids like we do, I do not call it a vacation. I call it a relocation, not a vacation, family trip. A real vacation would be my wife and I going, leaving the kids behind. <laughs> you take the kids with you, it's not a vacation. Anyone that has little kids can attest to that. Relocation. So when you mentally plan a trip, you can really go there with your mind and you can really pretend to be there. And it doesn't cost anything. How wonderful. You can mentally go to a place where you automatically experience the state you wish to be in. Remember, since we are dealing with your mind, you could transport yourself in life to that place. No place is too far away. And the transportation costs are always free. Because sometimes we need to travel, whether for business or for leisure, and at times it is difficult to get there. But sometimes we could just set our mind to think about it, or travel to a place and we could be there. Especially with Google Earth, with pictures and Zoom nowadays. Do you know, during the height of the pandemic, my wife and I are huge Harry Potter fans, the Hobdell. So during the height of the pandemic, we took a virtual Zoom trip through the different places mentioned in, in Harry Potterville, in Harry Potter books and folklore and the like. And we had this very interesting British tour guide who took us around, and it was a fascinating experience for an hour, totally worth it. He even did a, a leisure game with us. It was a wonderful experience. Ten points for Gryffindor. 
It was wonderful, and we use Zoom to do so. And nowadays, with the adventure, with the advent of Zoom, and Google Earth, and and pictures, there's all these virtual trips, all these virtual things. We also tried and escaped the room virtually. Not recommended, at least not for myself. I am not good at those. Ended up, I got us stuck in the room and <laughs> couldn't get us out. So uh, maybe a, a physical one would be easier, but I'm not sure I would like that so much either. Maybe a little claustrophobic, but we could use Google Earth. We could use pictures. We could use Zoom to get different places. And if you want to be in a different state of mind, you want to transport yourself to a different place, think about how you could get there in life and how you could think about it. Rabbi Blach points on H.com a fascinating thing. I never really noticed it before, Rabbi Blech says. The week before Yom Kippur, he was suddenly reading the words that he must have looked at hundreds and hundreds of times before in a totally new light. The simple question posed by the Metropolitan Transit Authority, which we talked about before, by the machines found in every New York subway station, took on a profound personal meaning. I can't tell you how many times I had to get a, a train ticket or get a subway card, and they ask you this profound question, at least for Rabbi Blach, but for us it should also be a profound question. In New York, metro cards are used to pass through a turnstile. The card has to be refilled on a regular basis. Now they have automatic refill. They can mail you a card. They can refill it for you. But I actually personally like to manually fill it. But you can fill it either by cash or by credit card payment. So the machine that carries out the transaction offers one question. It offers you a choice of a question. And if you've been to a station or you've been to a machine, this is the question that you probably remember and are familiar with. Do you want more time or do you want more value? Do you want more time or do you want more value? It's a very fascinating question. More time or more value? Why can't I get both? You have to choose one. More time or more value? Everyone has their own transportation preference. In the rush to catch the next train, I've never seen anyone stop and ponder their decision. But I guess, and this is Rabbi speaking, because it was the 10 days of repentance he'd been thinking about his life from the perspective of standing in judgment for God. With the fate for the coming year in the balance, he stopped short to think about the deeper implications of the MTA challenge. More time or more value. Almost causing a frantic pileup of commuters behind him. Refilling the MetroCard posed, posed a personal theological quandary. Here you've been praying throughout Rosh Hashanah for life, and you and most people tremble when they read the stirring words of the Usana Tokef, Mi Yechia Umiyomus, Mi Bamayim, Mi Bamagifa, Mi Baish. We should never know from such things. Everyone should live a Meves Mshana, but unfortunately, there's some people who live and some people who don't. We should all be Zocha on Meves Mshana. We say this by different things. In the year, in the years in the past that had crazy things, the pandemic and hurricanes and earthquakes and fires and floods unimaginable and terrifying possibilities for the end of days. The descriptions listed in the prayer no longer seem far-fetched. The angel of death found opportunities to turn all the horrific illustrations into reality, but we should never know from such things. So of course you want life. You pray to God to grant you more time, to grant you more life. But if you have to choose between two desirable ideals, how do you choose more time or more value? More value or more time? Time or value? Value or time? The easiest thing to do is request both. Oh, Hashem, please give me more time and grant me more value. I always think it interesting when we look at how the Avos are described at the end of their life, they're described in a way that seems to show both. Yemei Shnei Chayei Avraham. Yemei Shnei Chayei Sarah. Why does it say that? Shouldn't it just say the Shanim? Shouldn't it just say the Yamim? Why say both? 
because the Alvos were people, the commentators explained, that made the most of every year and every day. Some people can have 120 years, but never use a single day to utmost purpose. Wasted away so many days of utter pointlessness, sitting on their couch, vegging away, doing nothing. But when you have a person like Avraham, they made the most of every day. So you could say not only did they use their years, not only did they use their time, but they used their value. Every day counted and every year counted. Yimei Shanei Chayei Avraham. He had 147 years or so, or 107, I always mess up all the numbers, but they had a, a nice long life. But it wasn't just years. All the days were full of value and the time they had was full of value. But if you look at this question and you're asked for more time or more value, you want to ask for both. You should do both, and you should make sure that your life is full of value and time. But what if, like the Metro Card Machine, what if it's only willing to offer one option? What if we have to decide between time and value, between existence and purpose, between longer days or more meaningful hours? Perhaps the simplest way to answer the question is to acknowledge the standard by which we end up evaluating the lives of those who preceded us. When we calculate the impact people had on the world, on their communities, on their families, and on their friends, do we just measure how long they lived? Or do we emphasize how well they lived? That's the idea of Avram and Saram, Yitzchak and Yaakov. They lived well and they lived long. They used their days and their years. Is age the ultimate determinant of achievement, of heroism, or of saintliness? Eternal legacies are not created primarily by numbers of years lived. They are fashioned by days. Yimei, shanei, shanei, yimei. No matter how few, which exemplify divine qualities of character and epitomize righteous behavior. Two examples I could think of offhand are the Arim and, um, now I forget the name of the other rabbi, of course, but there were two rabbis, very famous rabbi, who did not live such long lives. But did they live very full lives? And did they live very full lives? Yes. That would be the Ari, I believe, lived to 36. And there was another one, Rabbi Levine maybe. I can't remember offhand, but there's another rabbi who lived not such a long life, unfortunately. Only 36 years, 49 years, but they lived a very full life. They got a lot accomplished. They got a lot done. Because the age is not the determinant, but the legacy, how much is done, how much was accomplished, what did they achieve? It's not by the numbers of years, it's by the days, no matter how few, showing the divine quality of character and epitomizing righteous behavior. More time is not really in our hands. Its quality, however, can only be determined by our own free will. We're created in the image of Hashem. Our lives, first and foremost, must demonstrate our divine origin. Every one of us was created with a mission. To be given the gift of life was God's way of saying He needs us to become a partner with Him in the holy task of perfecting the world. Our mission in life is our justification for being. If you are here, breathing, living, there is something you need to accomplish. There's something you need to do. You have a mission. You have a purpose. Find it and do it. Our days on earth are limited by our mortality, but our lasting achievements on earth outlive us by virtue of our values. Rabbi Blach talks about and depicts how he remembers the calling card an elderly rabbi once gave him. On one side was his name, address, and phone number. On the other hand, there was a simple question. What on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? So it's a double entendre. It's a plan words on purpose. What on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? For heaven's sake, what are you doing here? What on earth are you doing? 
So what are you doing here on earth? What is your purpose? What are you doing for Hashem to be Mekadashim Shemaim? And what on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? Already, what are you doing already? Tell me what you're doing in this life. So as you get through the year and you think about what you're supposed to do, it's good to recall that the hope for more time is not really in our hands. The length of our journey of life is fixed from above. We should all be zochot to have 120 years, and it should be quality, quantitative, and qualitative wonderful years. But how we use it, the quality, can be determined by our own free will. It is we who can choose more value above more time. It is we who have the option to select the holy over the profane, which is really the essence of what we do in Judaism. We take the materialistic and we raise it up. We just said Hanukkah, we take the flames, which are lit as a material, as a physical thing. We light the flames, but the flames itself are kind of spiritually. It has a spiritual element. We want to make sacred over the superficial. We want to make the meaningful over the insignificant. There's something far more important than counting our days. It is to make our days count. More important than counting our days is to make our days count. That is the commitment to God we should make every day of the entire year. And hopefully when you choose the option of more value, Hashem will be kind enough to grant us more time as well. As we travel around in our own lives, maybe we too should think about those words and those choices in our own days. Rabbi Scheller points out on H.com, we just saw recently in the recent Parshiot how Yosef was sold by a caravan of Ishmaelites. We talked about before the invention of the wheel and the caravans and the wagons, which for sure use the wheels. But behold, in Bereshis, in 3725, in Lamed Zayin Chafei, it says the caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilad. Their camels were bearing spices, balsam, and lotus on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Why in the world it is, important, is it important for us to know the specifics of what the camels were bringing? And Rashi points out that the fact that it told us what they're bringing shows the significance. Because if they're bringing spices and balsam and lotus and you're telling me that's what they're bringing, usually that's not what they brought. Usually that's not what they carried. But specifically this time, for some reason, that is what they brought. Because other times they wouldn't bring that. Rashi explains just that. Ishmaelite caravans normally carry foul-smelling spices, but in order to spare the righteous Joseph from the offensive odor, Hashem arranged that the caravan carried fragrant spices. We learn from this the great reward that the righteous enjoy. Imagine a man who was arrested and is about to be transported to a prison which houses dangerous criminals. The officer sees him shaking like a leaf and tells him, don't worry, there is some good news. The bus that's transporting you to prison has a good smell. The man stares at the officer in amazement. The last thing he cares about is how his transportation to prison smells. Yosef was being sold as a slave. And of course, in this parsha, he's reunited with his brothers. It's a beautiful reunion. But at first, when he's sold, he's sold as a slave. The last thing he cared about was the aroma. All he wanted was to be freed. How does the presence of spices show us the great reward that the righteous enjoy along the path as they're transported in life? A young boy wakes up and finds himself in a car driven by a man he does not know. He realizes that he has been kidnapped. He starts crying for his parents. Lolena, which never know from such things. He starts crying for his parents only to be ignored, causing him to cry even harder. The man stops the car and says, we're going to eat now. The little boy opens up the platter and is shocked to see that the food is the same thing that he eats every day, in the exact same way that his mother prepares it for him. 
he realizes that it must be that his mother sent this food. She must have arranged this whole ride. He hasn't been kidnapped. He's in a safe hands. He stops crying and immediately feels at ease. He feels great. Yosef's brothers wanted to execute him. He was thrown into a pit, feeling abandoned and lost. Why does it say that there was no water? If it's empty, of course there's no water. Rashi points out, There was, it's obviously not grammatically correct. I'm not so good at that. Of course there was something in it. If it didn't have water, you can't tell me it's empty, there's no water. I already know it's empty. If it's empty of water, there was something else in it. There were scorpions and sinks. They wanted to kill him. First, they, according to the commentators, first they tried to shoot arrows at him. That didn't work. Then they tried to release dogs and him. That didn't work. Then they tried, They wanted to do it grama in like a roundabout way so they wouldn't feel that their hands were actually shedding blood. When they couldn't do the roundabout ways, then they threw them into a pit because that would be a grama way that at least he'd be taken care of by these creatures and not them. And then when that didn't work, they figured out a better way to profit to sell him. But they wanted to figure out a way how to get rid of him. They thought he was liable to the death penalty. They felt like he was a morate, someone who was rebelling, someone that was getting in the way. So he was thrown into a pit feeling abandoned and lost, and then he was sold to a caravan of Ishmaelites who always had foul-smelling wagons. However, this time there was a pleasant smell. He understood the message. Hashem was telling him, God was telling him that all of these events were part of the plan. Don't worry. I'm holding your hand the whole way through. Don't worry. I have your hand. Sometimes we may go through very hard periods, but throughout them we seemingly see we see seemingly random events that appear unusual, almost like a miracle. It's God telling us, don't worry. I'm orchestrating all these events and there's a plan behind everything. You're in safe hands. Hashem takes us along the journey and transports us with wonderful transportation. And we don't even think about or appreciate the details like a good smelling or air-conditioned car of the train on a brutally hot day or heat in the train on a wickedly cold day. Appreciate the little things along your transits, along your transports, and along your travels, and think about what Hashem does for you in your transportation of life. Eshtakam points out in the poem what God won't ask. God won't ask what kind of car you drove. He doesn't care if it's a Bentley or a Porsche or a Ferrari. Not we have, not that we have any of those things. Of course, we have a nice Sienna minivan. But whatever kind of drive you car, kind of car you drive, it doesn't matter. He won't ask you what kind of car you drove. He'll ask you how many people you drove who did not have transportation. God won't ask the square footage of your house. He'll ask how many people you welcomed into your home. You helped from your home. He won't ask you how big your kitchen is. He will ask how many people were helped. By your kitchen? Did you cook for people? Did you give to people? Did you help people? Did you give of your home? Did you give of your supplies, of your books, of your clothing? What did you do from your home? I don't care how big your house is. I want to know what you do with your house to help others from your house, to help others from your car. God won't ask you about the clothes you had in your closet. He'll ask how many people you helped to clothe. In recent months, we just had Yad Leah, the clothing donation, which is annually that comes to us. The best feeling was to give away a couple of bags. I've talked about this many times on all the shows. The best feeling we get sometimes is not by what we have, but by what we give. And they say you don't own the money that you actually use for bills. You own the money that you give away, which seems to be an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. How is that true? Because that which you give away is what you really keep. Nothing materialistic or physical stays with you after 120. Only what you do, what you give, the reputation you get, the mitzvahs you do, that's what comes with you. 
So God doesn't care what kind of car you drive. Doesn't care how big or small your house is. Doesn't care what you wore. He cares what you did with the car, what you did with the house, what you did with clothing. God won't ask you what your job title was. He'll ask if you performed your job to the best of your ability. The author is unknown, but it's a beautiful poem to teach us to think about in our transports of life as we go through life. As our travels through life, what are we doing with our life? What are we doing with our things? Are we helping those around us? You have to use what Hashem gave you, especially in terms of traveling and for transportation, for good. Use your car to give rides. Some people say that Hachnas Sorchem includes giving people rides with your car. Use your car to drop off food for people, to deliver clothing for people, to deliver toys for people and books for people. Use your traveling for good. Slova Young Rice Wolf points out on H.com, the daughter of Robinson Young Rice. One time she landed in an airport in Texas. It was pouring outside, and Rabbi Menachem Block, who had invited her to speak, met her at the airport. The task was scheduled for that evening. The talk of the task was scheduled for that evening in the synagogue, the Chabad of Plano in Collin County. As they drove, she looked around and asked, Rabbi Block, how did you end up here? Were you born here? No, he replied with a smile. I actually grew up in a place I doubt you've heard of, London, Ontario. London, Ontario? I couldn't believe it. Rabbi, have I got a story to tell you? It happened 35 years ago in London, Ontario, and I'll never forget it. The, the author explains, when the eldest son was just a toddler, her husband and her traveled to Toronto, Canada on a Friday morning. They normally wouldn't fly on a Friday, but since it was the summer, Shabbos was late, the trip was short, they figured it would be okay. Mid-air, of course, every time you think it'll be okay, something always crazy happens. Mid-air, the pilot made an announcement. There was a terrible windstorm, and the Toronto airport was shut down, was closed. They had no choice but to fly to London. There was so much upheaval among the passengers. Some thought they were flying to London, England. Who had ever heard of a place in Ontario called London, Ontario? Shabbos was coming. There was no way this would work. A few minutes later, the pilot told them that no one would be able to get off the plane until bus arrangements to Toronto were secured and customs officials completed their plans to process everyone and their luggage. Everyone would need to sit tight and wait. Her husband and her looked at each other wide-eyed. Shabbos was coming. How would there be any way to make this work? It was not going to work. How are they going to make it in time? I'm sure everyone knows the feeling that Shabbos is coming. Even if it's 7 o'clock in the summer or 4 o'clock in the winter, you always feel like you never have enough time in Arab Shabbos, and you just don't make it. I remember one time my friend came to visit, and he wasn't coming. There was traffic, traffic, traffic. It ended up that... We didn't know what would happen. I had to turn off my phone before Shabbos. And after Shabbos came, he walked in the door, lo and behold, and I'm like, what in the world happened? I was so worried. He said, I had to park two miles away. I had to ask these people to get to the Chabad and had to get to your house. I had to walk and leave my cars and the key, the keys in the car. And hopefully the car was going to be there after Shabbos. Thank God it was there. But we all know the feeling that Shabbos is coming. How are we going to make it? Are we going to beat the clock? Are we going to make it and beat the clock? So they too felt... How is this going to work? How are we going to make it in time for Shabbos? By the time we would land, it would be close to Shabbos. We needed to get off the plane as soon as possible. We called over to the flight attendant. We're told that the only way we can disembark right away would be if we declared a medical emergency. And we would forfeit not only the ride, they said, to Toronto, but they'd have to get off the plane minus the luggage. No clothing, no diapers for the toddler, no food besides the few snacks, nothing. But the sun was setting soon. There was no stopping Shabbos. Shabbos was coming like a train that can't be stopped. We knew what we needed to do, the author explained. So they were 
The author was expecting her. She declared a medical necessity to leave. The moment the plane touched the ground, they carried their son and their hand luggage, left the plane and all its passengers behind. They looked around. Sitting in the middle of a cornfield, the heat was sweltering. What in the world were they going to do? Where in the world were they? What could they do? They walked into the tiny terminal. There was not a soul to be seen. Now what? They sat down on one of the empty chairs, holding the little boy, and started to cry. The husband tried to calm her down, but what could they do? What could they eat? How would they care for their son? What kind of Shabbos would it be? A woman appeared behind one of the ticket counters. Sometimes in these stories, I think it's Eliyahu Anavi dressing up as different personas. So this person magically appears. After asking about the situation, she said that she thought she knew of one Jewish couple in town. God bless the Lubavitch couples that go all over the world into these far, far-fetched, far-fetched, places that nobody else lives in. But they're there to be that Jewish presence. So she knew one Jewish couple in town. And this, not, this wasn't exactly a Chabad couple, but I'm just giving a shout-out anyway. The question was, would, we, would the author want them to call them? She said that he was a professor at the University of Western Ontario. They were doubtful. A professor? Does he know about Shabbos observance? Does he keep kosher? Does he keep Shabbos? Who knows who these people are? And we'd be strangers to them too, they thought. The woman found the professor's number and dialed. They explained their situation, wary of the voicing at their end. Hesitantly, they asked, do, do, do you keep Shabbos? Are you kosher? They heard a wonderful laugh filled with joy. Shalom Aleichem! Come join us for Shabbos. We will be so happy to have Shabbos guests. This is the type of philosophy I love to have also, Corona aside, to be able to be that family that anyone could randomly have, worst case scenario. You see this at the Kotel, you see this in the Old City and around Israel. People just invite people all the time, especially people that look like they have nowhere to go. We would be so happy to have Shabbos guests. A few moments later, they found themselves in the home of a most welcoming couple. They somehow secured diapers for the kid, gave fresh clothing to change into ice drinks and warm smiles, and incredibly they felt at home. The professor had much Torah wisdom to share throughout the meal. There were all types of interesting people joining, Jews who were tasting Shabbos for the very first time. The professor's wife had more than enough delicious food, even though they were unplanned guests. It was only after Shabbos that they discovered the great kindness of the couple. Do you know what they did? They had given up their own bedroom, their very own bedroom to sleep in, because it was the only one in the whole house with air conditioning. They slept in an airless room so that the guests would be comfortable. And they were touched to their core. They never experienced such beautiful hospitality. After Shabbos, they arranged transportation to Toronto. The author and her family were touched to their core. They had never experienced such beautiful achnasas orchem in the spirit of Avram and Sarah in the barren desert. So, Rabbi Block, the author said, I do know London, Ontario. Rabbi Block was silent for a moment. His eyes glistened. That professor? That professor? That was my father. You actually stayed in my home and spent Shabbos with my parents. The author was speechless. She called her husband and said, London, Ontario, tell me what comes to mind. Without a pause, the husband recalled the professor, his wife, and their beautiful mitzvah that remained in their hearts till that day. They didn't know that, that they, Dr. Block received the PhD from Harvard, was a brilliant scholar, and when offered a professorship in London, Ontario, he had truly wanted to become a rabbi instead. What will we do there? Dr. Block and his wife had asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and the Rebbe wisely said at the time, you will find what there is to be done. Kind of almost prophetic, Nevoah in, in a way. The Rebbe knew that they were going to need to be there for a couple one day. We're placed on this earth to create a legacy, to make a difference, to shine our light. 
We can't realize the impact we have with just one deed, one good word, one Shabbos. But there they were 35 years later and the kindness was never forgotten. Who knows what you can do today that will sprinkle magic for years to come. Because we could transport those around us even if transportation itself is lacking. What can we do to interact with and help those around us? Nisano Safran points out from H.com a story. My friend Amy has a funny way of looking at things, the author explains. I saw her the other day in school. Since it was a new term, we started talking about the classes we were taking. I told her that I was very excited about studying French this year. She told me she had also signed up for French, but all the classes were full. And so she was assigned to the Russian class instead. Russian, I said. You must be really disappointed. Amy just smiled. I guess I'm going to need it for something someday. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been placed there. Well, if it were me, I think I would have locked myself in my room for three days. The author didn't bump it to Amy again until it was almost winter break. Of course, they spoke about where they would be going for vacation. She told me she planned all year to take this amazing trip down to Disney World, but at the last minute, her parents had changed their minds and decided to take everyone on a historical trip to Europe instead. She and her family were going to get passports that afternoon. Ah, how boring, I thought. But believe it or not, Amy just took it all in stride. It was meant to be, I guess. This is just another stop on my journey through life. Maybe someday I'll find out why, she said calmly. That's sure not the way I would have reacted. But you haven't heard anything yet. Just last week, I invited all the kids over for a sleepover birthday party at my house. The protagonist of the story is talking through the author. I knew Amy would be excited because she loves these kind of things. But guess what? She said she couldn't come because they were having guests from out of town. Some lady was coming that her mom was her mom's second cousin. Amy hadn't even met her before, but she had to stay home. Now I was sure Amy would be mad, but I almost fell over when she just cheerfully said, I guess it's just part of my life's plan that I meet her instead of going to a party. I told you she had a funny way of looking at things. But you wouldn't believe what happened. I got a call yesterday that blew my mind. It was Amy. At first, I didn't even recognize her voice because she was so excited. It turns out that the lady cousin of her mom's is a famous teacher who makes educational movies and was about to fly to Moscow to make a film about Russian kids. She invited Amy to come with her for two weeks to assist her and be in the film. They would stay at the best five-star hotels and be interviewed on Russian TV. Since it is educational, Amy would even be allowed to miss school and get school credit for it. Sounds great, right? But there's more. Wait, there's more. The filmmaker said she could only take someone along who could speak at least a little Russian and had a ready passport since they had to leave right away. Just think, Amy said to me, if I hadn't gotten stuck taking Russian, if I hadn't gone to Europe and needed a passport... And if I hadn't missed out on your party to meet this lady, I would never have been able to go on this dream trip. Well, I was speechless. It now seems to me that Amy's way of looking at things really isn't so funny after all. In fact, maybe that's how I'm going to start looking at things from now on. As you travel along the path of life and go with its twists and turns like a hair-raising bus ride in the Negev, what will you meet along the way? Who will you meet along the way? What will you learn? Where will you go? Life is its own transportation, and Hashem takes you all over throughout your year and throughout your years in your life. The transportation of life is the best ride you could ever have. 
Listen to this other story from the Son of Saffron on H.com. When are we ever going to get there? Josh cried out in frustration as the car wove its way along the winding mountain road. His parents were taking him and his sister Emily on a vacation to a resort hotel in the mountains, which was great. But what definitely wasn't great was the long, boring trip to get there. We must have been driving a zillion hours already. I can't take it anymore, he groaned, turning to Emily in the next seat. But his sister, who had her face pressed up against the window, didn't answer or even seem to hear him. In best brotherly fashion, he punched her in the arm to get her attention. Ah, why'd you do that? I'm bored. That's why this trip has taken forever. I wish we could just push a button and get there already instead of wasting all this time. Who said you have to waste it? Emily asked, her usual cheerful smile returning to her face. Well, what else am I supposed to do? How about enjoying it? We're on vacation after all. Wrong. We are going on vacation. Once we get to the hotel, the lake, the speedboats, the sauna, then we'll be on vacation. Certain he had made his point, Josh folded his arms smugly across his chest. But Emily just gave him one of her patented crinkle-nosed head shakes that meant she thought he was out to lunch. Listen, mister, maybe your vacation isn't going to start for another two and a half hours when we get to the hotel, but mine started the minute we got into the car, if not earlier. Why wait until we get somewhere to enjoy ourselves when there's so much to enjoy along the way? What on earth are you talking about? For one thing, just look out that window. Have you ever seen more gorgeous or interesting scenery? Josh, who hadn't bothered looking out the window except to try to occasionally read the sign saying how many more miles they had to go, reluctantly followed Emily's pointing finger. See how tall and thick the trees are here compared to home? And how the license plates on most of the cars are bigger than ours in a different color? I guess it's kind of interesting, nodded Josh, but what does one and that have anything to do with being on vacation? As they were talking, the car started to slow down and pulled into the rest stop on the side of the road. Oh no, the boy said. Another rest stop? That means even more wasted time until we get there. He noticed Emily's eyes light up, almost like she was happy about the whole thing. Come on, Josh, she grinned. Let's go enjoy the next part of our vacation. After getting the parents' nod of approval with nothing better to do, Josh followed her to the Taurus Information Desk, where there was a candy machine and various brochures and maps were laid neatly on a counter in front of a big poster of the out-of-state symbol. The maps and stuff are free. You all can help yourselves, the woman behind the counter said. Isn't this interesting, Josh? I've never seen any of these brands of candy before, have you? And she added with a whisper, Did you notice that lady's accent? Josh, who was starting to enjoy himself, grabbed a couple of maps. He liked deciphering maps and figured he could check them out back in the car. Okay, guys, hop into the car and we're on our way, their dad said. Mom and I certainly hope you're going to enjoy your vacation. Josh looked at Emily and smiled. Thanks to her, he already was. Sometimes traveling along the way can already be all the fun. We just have to keep in mind and keep it in heart. In fact, there are some sources throughout the Tanakh, throughout the time that talk about transportation itself. Beitza points out in 25b that a type of transportation is highly conspicuous as the appearance of weekday activity, if done in a certain way, especially when it's showing disrespect for the festival or for the Shabbos. Yevamos points out in 116a, as for apparently contradictory testimony, perhaps a person went by a flying camel in order to get somewhere really fast. Sometimes Gemara uses 
euphemisms and the like, but an extremely fast means of transportation was able to travel from Naharda'a to Surah in one day, talking about a flying camel, maybe indicative of a much, much later idea of an actual flying airplane. Radak points out on Genesis, the dispersal process was gradual and methods of transportation were severely limited, especially in the olden days. Yushalmi Talmud points out in Shkallam, Premiums were spent on transportation expenses, the cost of moving the shekels from the collection sites to Yerushalayim. And the Daf Shavui to Avodah points out, The way transportation often works still today, a person has a right to take a suitcase on a plane, but she will not receive a discount if she does not bring one. And Gray Matter points out, The development of modern means of transportation and the mass migration movements of the past century facilitated marriages between Jews of different backgrounds because it only happened recently. Transportation and the ability to move all over the world was only a very recent thing. Contemporary halachic problems points out, it goes without saying that an automobile may be used on Shabbos by a physician called upon to tend a gravely ill patient or for the transportation of such a patient to a hospital. You ever think of the idea of how a tzalek could get around and save someone within a minute or two on Shabbos or Yom Tov? The ability to get around the community, to get around the town and do life-saving work is amazing. Rabbeinu Bachi or Bachaya points out in Devarim, Sanhedrin 21 interprets the words he did not, did not amass many horses to mean he should not amass more horses than he needs for transportation for himself and for his soldiers. And finally, Rabbeinu Bachi points out in Boratius, when Yaakov had seen the Agalas, his son had sent him for transportation, which actually comes in this portion when Yaakov, Ashkacha, Yaakov is reunited with, with Yosef, he looks at what he sent him for transportation. But what actually revives the spirit of Yaakov? He realized that his son had not forgotten the last lesson. That is what made his spirit revive. Do you think Yaakov, the Bachar HaAvos, the last of the Avos, some say the highest of the Avos, because he had a very, very difficult life. Very difficult. That's why he comes before Paro. And Paro says, how old are you? Is that a normal question for a king to ask someone who visits? But Yaakov looked very, very aged because the travels and the travails and the difficulties and tragedies in his life literally aged him. And he looked like an ancient person when he was 130. You know, Paro probably saw people that lived very long, but Yaakov looked so difficult. But So when Yosef sends the carriages, the wagons, really, to Yaakov in this parsha in Vayigash, and he sees the wagons. Do you think Yaakov was impressed by the status, the royalty of Yosef? That's not what, what he wanted to see. Yaakov didn't define things in physical terms, Rabbi Artsko points out. He defined things in spiritual terms. So when he sees Yosef, the question, the one question he asks, is it the same Yosef with the same morals, the same Torah, the same upbringing that I gave him before we were disconnected for 22 years? So when he sees the Agolas and understands the spiritual message that Yosef is showing him, the last lesson they learned together, Rashi, the commentators point out, was Egla Arufa, about the if someone is not accompanied on the way and, and dies, and the, the elders of the city have to go and measure from which city, and they have, to, they have to break a calf's neck, saying that we didn't do this, it wasn't on our hands. This whole idea of this Egla Arufa is what Yaakov learned with Yosef. And when Yosef sends the Agla, sends it's not just for transportation, it's for a deeper metaphorical, metaphysical idea a deeper purpose to teach what he really learned. That's what's really important. It wasn't about the transportation figuratively or literally. It was about the spiritual idea of transportation. Even though Yosef was transported to Mitzrayim, his morals were not transported. His ideology was not transported. His spirit was not transported. And in fact, when it talks about 
Menashe and Ephraim being born to him, it says that they are born unto him. Why does the word say unto him in the Pasuk? So the commentators point out, born unto him and not unto her. His wife, Asnas, could have easily dominated the home. Yosef was a former convict. He was in prison. He was a foreigner. He used to be a slave. He was someone that wasn't part of society, the only Hebrew in the entire society. Easily she could have dominated the home, but that wasn't true. He was the one that dominated the home. He was the one that the children were born to. He inculcated his values into his kids. She converted and, and took his moral outlook. And that is one of the reasons the commentators say that we say, may our children be like Menashe and Ephraim, especially as a lot of us live in Gullis and have to contend with secular society and culture. We look to Yosef. In this week's Parsha, we look to him as the role model of living in a secular society and a very morally corrupt society. We know they were 50 levels of Toma, and eventually the Jews are almost at the worst level. We look to Yosef, and, and he sends the transportation vehicle to his dad, not just for physical transportation, but for spiritual reasons as well. As we go through our life, as we transport ourselves and we travel and we use transportation, understand where it comes from. Give gratitude to Hashem for giving such beautiful inventions that are only recent in nature. As we go about our life and we transport ourselves and we travel, think about what we used to travel. Think about where we're going in life. Hashem gave us very many beautiful inventions and innovations for trade, for transport, for traveling. Appreciate them, use them, and have gratitude to them. Make sure to use the transport wisely and smartly and do some good with them. And do some good while you use them. If you're on the train, maybe use it to learn something or to listen to some Torah. If you have a house, use it for Torah reasons, for Torah purposes. You have a car, give people rides, drop off gifts, drop off food, drop off clothing. If you're transporting yourself, if you're using transportation, use it for Torah. Use it for mitzvahs, use it for chesed, because it would be a terrible opportunity to squander. It would be a terrible opportunity to waste. If we could use such things and make the world a better place, a more peaceful place, a more terrific place, maybe we could be Zoha to have Mashiach today, maybe we Zoha that it is, in fact, today. This has been the TTL, Tani Talks Life. Thank you for joining us where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons. God willing, join us in two weeks where we talk again. And I'm your host, Tani.